Good morning. If you're with us here in Western Australia in Perth, good afternoon. If you're signing in from Sydney, my name is Gordon Flake. I'm the CEO of the Perth US Asia Centre and it's my great honour to welcome you to the seventh and for this year at least final in our ongoing series of reviews of the United States political situation, a US politics review that we've been doing since June, June jointly with our partners at the United States Studies Centre. This has been from the very beginning a wonderful opportunity for myself as CEO of the Perth US Asia Centre to interact with uh, Professor Simon Jackman, who's the CEO of the United States Studies Centre, uh, and to bring to you, our community, a number of guests, ob observers, experts on developments over the last six months. Uh, and now as we wrap up 2020, although it, that doesn't seem like 2020 is entirely done with us yet, uh, this is a wonderful opportunity for Simon and I to reflect back on what's happened thus far, uh, the state of play today, and to look forward to developments in 2021. So let me begin by, as is our tradition at the Perth US Asia Center, acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we're meeting, virtual though it may be, uh, the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging, uh, and are delighted to, to, to be at the University of Western Australia uh, which uh, affords us this opportunity that we've had for the last seven years of our, our existence. Um, because we have been alternating hosting of this, this monthly discussion, uh, I've, I've drawn uh, the, the, the long straw. I got lucky today. And then that I'm acting as kind of moderator as a host, and that means I get to just drill Simon with a lot of questions uh, and then opine on the sidelines. But in that, we've been very fortunate uh, to partner with the United States Studies Center. There really is no organization uh, in Australia and arguably no organization anywhere in the Southern Hemisphere or within the Indo-Pacific more broadly that has paid closer attention to political developments, to security developments, to economic developments in the United States uh, and in understanding their implications, not just for us here in Australia, but for the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and, and that's no surprise given that the United States Studies Center is, is led by Professor Simon Jackman. I think you all know him well. Uh, his long tenure of over 20 years at Stanford University means that he brought with him back to Australia uh, this tremendous level of expertise on American politics, which uh, his center, the United States Studies Center, has, has benefited tremendously from. But our broader community, not just in Perth, but now that we have uh, an audience in this virtual world that extends throughout the region to India, to Japan, to Indonesia, uh, and beyond to, to share that. So Simon, uh, thank you for this partnership. We've really enjoyed uh, the last seven months in discussion. And I just wanted to kick off uh, by, by again thanking you, not just for the partnership, but by your bringing on this extended network of individuals. If I reflect back over the last uh, seven months, we've had some tremendous guests join us for this monthly conversation. Uh, former congressional candidate, Evelyn Farkas, former member of Congress and one of your senior fellows, uh, Mia Love, uh, former U.S. Senator Jeff Flake, uh, your own expert in your Senator Garana Gergic, uh, Chelsea Martin, former consul general to, to, to L.A., as well as former Ambassador Jeff Bleis, and others, uh, Mark Texter, you know, tremendous pollster, et cetera. So we've had a lot of expertise. I thought we might want to kick on the conversation before jumping right into the here and now and asking you to just kind of reflect back. Uh, in the, the, again, six plus months that we've been doing these discussions, are there any reflections you've had in the conversations where somebody who was our guest got it exactly right or that you're reflecting back on or got it wrong or, or insights that we had to pull forward to our conversation today as we kick off? 
Well, Gordon, first of all, before I answer that, let me just thank you for that extraordinarily generous introduction. Thank you for that. And um, on behalf of the center as well, not just myself, but, um, um, and yeah, it's been a great partnership and um, great way to, to end it uh, for the year at least. And, and we'll see what the new year brings with uh, keeping these events rolling forward. Um, Trump may be disappearing from the White House at some point soon, but um, uh, the missions of our two centers remain uh, extremely top of mind uh, for uh, Australia uh, and for people joining us around the region. Uh, so, so I think there's a, quite an appetite for us to continue some form of, of this monthly check-in um, uh, next year, and we'll see, we'll see what that brings. But um, to return to your question, um, look, <laughs> I keep, I, Gordon, I keep going back to the Jeff Flake conversation we had with Garana. Um, we're literally an hour later, we got the news that Trump had been diagnosed with, with COVID. It was just like, you've got to be kidding. Like, could this year get any crazier? And I think it was Garana that was saying, you know, there's more surprises yet. And um, you picked the October can... surprise for sure. No question. <laughs> yeah. and, and I remember getting an email from Senator Flake literally about an hour later, you know, the usual, thank you for, thank you for your time, Senator. And that was great. And, that, and then we're just all reacting to this news. It was really, it was really crazy. And, and again, the immediacy of this medium, like we could be in real time conversation with Senator Flake there in Arizona and reacting to this news across the time zones that span all the way from Perth to, to in that case, to Arizona. Um, um, I, I guess the other thing I'd single out is that um, Mia Love, um, who I, I, I guess, I guess it was 50-50. I guess when we had her on the call, she was very down on President Trump. Um, and, you know, it's been a constant sort of theme from Mia that Trump has taken the party away from its, you know, the Reagan-led or the, the vision of a, of a Republican party uh, pursuing the aspirations and the image laid out for it under the, in the age of Reagan. She sort of noted, as Senator Flake for that matter, um, there's been a real break from that. And yet um, on election day, Mia tweeting out that uh, she'd voted uh, for Trump. Um, and I, I think I might look forward to perhaps a follow-up conversation with Mia as to, uh, and, and perhaps a few other people as well. Um, the flip side of that would be not a talk we did in this series, Gordon, but uh, uh, another event we co-hosted, and that's the, that was the John Bolton conversation where Bolton, again, I think of a similar mindset to some extent, um, that Trump is not a real conservative and he's doing untold damage to the national interests of the United States. Um, but he, although he said he wouldn't be voting for Trump, um, he wouldn't be voting for Biden either. And I think Jeff Flake was in that camp. Uh, no, Jeff came out and actually said he was going to vote for Biden. So it was really interesting to watch, I guess, those three Republicans um, sort of land in different places um, with respect to their vote. And that was a, that was a really... It was great to get those voices. Um, I think you put your over, over the course on, of the year. I think you put your finger on something that we're going to be discussing a lot going into next year, and that I'm hearing from a lot of um, our the, the community here in Australia, and that is, you know, one way or the other, uh, you know, now it looks like 75 million Americans will have voted for Donald Trump, 
Uh, and so kind of breaking that down and, and, and getting some understanding as to what percentage of those were kind of MAGA hat wearing, you know, rally attending, uh, you know, full on for Donald Trump, you know, supporters, others like Mia who were reluctant or perhaps voting on abortion, et cetera. Others who might arguably one way or the other uh, have supported the Republican Party, but not the president. It's going to be really interesting uh, for us to kind of slice and dice that. And it's going to have real implications for uh, the, the success of the Biden administration going forward. So I appreciate yeah, absolutely. that. Absolutely. I think it's probably one of the, sorry, Gordon, I was just going to say, I think it's probably one of the biggest questions about the future of American politics right now. Trump, while a defeated one-term president and joining a very short list um, of, uh, I'm just looking at the list right now. Um, <laughs> it, it reads, uh, Gerald Ford, Donald Trump, Jimmy Carter, Herbert Hoover, George Herbert Walker Bush, and Taft in 19, what is that at the bottom? 1912, yeah. Um, uh, it's a very short list in the last 120 years. Yeah, you have to add John Adams and John Quincy Adams. If you well, I was just going back 120. I, I, I made 1900 my cutoff on this, but- um, Fair enough, fair enough. But, but, right. a, but he, he does so, Gordon, unlike those other presidents, um, a hallmark of Trump's time in office was this extraordinary polarization that has been growing in American politics, but went to a high watermark under Trump with, with his approval rating among Republicans on election eve at 95%. And uh, Jimmy Carter did not have a 95% approval rating among Democrats as, as he loses to Ronald Reagan in, in 1980. Um, and, and Trump leaves office with this stock of political capital and a, and a connection to a, a hardcore base of supporters, um, he, he leaves office with political capital that no one else on that list um, had as they left office, um, uh, of, at least of the, of the 20th century and 21st century presidential uh, losers. Um, and, and what he chooses to do with that political capital uh, uh, add to the fact that the Republicans ate into the Democratic majority in the House. The Democrats did not flip the Senate. And um, we can talk about what we think might happen in Georgia. But it puts Trump, therefore, I think, in a position of power over his party for a president leaving office under these circumstances. We haven't seen um, in, 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 in political memory um, and uh, in the United States. And, and I think the ball is in his court, so to speak. Uh, is it a straight monetization play? Is it a play for influence over the party heading into the 22 midterms and setting him up for a run in 24 or all of the above? Um, I, th I think a, a lot of the, the trajectory of American politics, Trump still has cards to play. Although I might add a little bit of a counterpoint to that. It, I saw just this morning uh, a listing of you know, the, the, the percentage of the popular vote that each president in this century has received. Uh, and Barack Obama in 2008 was at the peak, 52.3%. Uh, Joe Biden's victory is actually the second highest popular vote total in this century at nearly 52%, 51.9% right now. Uh, and at the very bottom is John McCain in 2008 at 45%. Uh, interestingly enough, in his two elections, uh, both one he won and now the one he's lost, uh, President Trump got... Uh, 46.1% in 2016 and, and, and I think 46.9% this time. 
uh, behind even Mitt Romney's 47%. And so mm -hmm. that's another way to kind of look at that as a percentage of the overall popular vote. Uh, he may have had 95, 96% of Republicans, but they accounted for a smaller percentage of, of, right. of the electorate. And as a result, as an overall percentage, even in victory, was among the lowest this century. So anyway, hey, I, I, we could go on these. <laughs> I want to say, no, I want to come back to the conversation we had with Mark Texter, but that'll be a, in a separate conversation on, on polling. I, I do have to give a, a shout out to my home state of Arizona. Uh, it, it, it was kind of fortuitous uh, that we did have the former senator from Arizona, Jeff Flake, on the program, and it turned out that Arizona proved to be such a turning point uh, if not in the final total, uh, in the narrative on election night itself. And so that, that obviously, you, you know, you've got to call out your hometown friends in that regard. Uh, let's, let's turn to the, the state of the transition. We spent a lot of time this year talking about the state of the race. Uh, the race ostensibly is over. The president-elect has, 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 um, uh, has been, you know, recognized broadly, although not yet by the, the, the institutions of the Republican Party, but internationally. Uh, next week on the 8th of December, all states are, are required to have selected their electors. Uh, by the 14th of December, the Electoral College actually formally cast their votes. Uh, and then by the 6th of January, those votes will be tabulated uh, by the House of Representatives. So that's the state of the transition, but this has been a transition like no other. I might want to just get you to start there. What is the state of the transition uh, and what are you watching there? Well. I think the single biggest thing to note over the last 72 hours or so was Bob Barr, the Attorney General, Trump's Attorney General, saying the Justice Department has found no significant fraud. Every, every, every 48 hours or so, and sometimes every 24 hours, there's another sort of nail in the coffin, as it were, just underscoring the, the certainty of this result. And, and the rest of the world moved on very quickly. Um, um, and, and slowly but surely, I think, people around Trump uh, uh, and, and Trump himself um, are, are coming to realize what's going to happen here. Um, I think that's an important point and one that's been, I think, settled for quite a while. Um, uh, and again, it, it, like all things Trump, what, what's rhetoric and a play for his continuing prominence in the national conversation, monetization or influence or both um, being the goals there perhaps. But um, um, so, so the election is over. Um, I think it's. I think we can we can move on and 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 talk about not so much uh, the legal formalities, um, which I think they will result in being that as they typically are legal formalities, and and not moments of constitutional high drama. Um, they'll 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 be the former, not the latter, um, as 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 has always been the case. Uh, in, again, in the last hundred and fifty years or so. Um, and then we can talk about the transition in the, in the ordinary sense, we top, typically use that word, Gordon, and, and that's how is Biden staffing up and putting together a new administration and what will their uh, priorities be? And, um, and I think that's where a conversation about Australia's natural interests start to sort of take firmer shape rather than a conversation about how will a close ally deal with constitutional and political uncertainty. I think that is now firmly receding into the rear view mirror and we can have a much more normal transition conversation. So I want to get to the transition in terms of personnel, uh, but there's several other things that come before that. We've got a special runoff election sure. uh, in Georgia. Um, uh, before we talk about Georgia, though, let me just kind of opine. Um, one of the things that's really been shocking for me 
as someone who was born and raised in the United States, is how much uh, the, this much vaunted system of checks and balances uh, in the United States system turned out to be largely based on the honor code, right? Yeah, that there, yeah it, it, it's been a really interesting year where things that you assumed nobody would ever do, no politician would ever do, whether it's the emoluments clause or a whole range of issues, all of a sudden, you know, in the end, if you end up having an individual who's not willing to abide by them, the system isn't quite as robust as you might expect, except for one very important exception, and that has been the courts. Uh, you know, when you look at the relationship between the legislative branch uh, and the executive branch over the last four years, that's one where it, we were actually quite surprised that the legislative branch uh, under Donald Trump really has not asserted uh, their prerogative as an Article I party to the Constitution, an Article I power with independent responsibilities. They've largely functioned as the party of Trump. The courts, on the other hand, have been a little bit more robust, and I think we're seeing that play out in the transition as well. It's, it's quite remarkable to me that I think we're now 43 to, to one, right? And, and all the various different motions that the Trump campaign or transition, however you want to phrase it, that his lawyers have filed in courts, the only one that has been successful was a day after the election, and that was in an individual county in Pennsylvania where they, they wanted to change the deadline for uh, when you know, late ballots could be received from nine days down to six days. And that's the only one they won. Every other motion uh, that they have filed has been, been knocked back by the courts. Uh, and that, to me, highlights a really important uh, divide in our modern society as we wrestle with what are facts, right? Because traditionally we thought the media would be an arbiter of facts, but the media environment has become so highly partisan. Um, you know, everybody chooses to 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 use the the term of Kelly and Conway their own facts, right? Their own alternate realities in that process. Uh, but when it comes to a court of law, when 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 you have to be sworn in and there are penalties for lying, uh, it turns out that's a very different standard than a 46-minute you know, speech given by the president that he tapes himself and releases. It's a, or by a speech given in front of a, a lawn and, and, and gardening home improvement center in suburban Pittsburgh or Pennsylvania, rather Philadelphia, by, by the president's lawyers. Uh, so that's a really interesting development for me in terms of the transition. Uh, you know, that, that important role of the judicial system and upholding those standards and norms. Any thoughts of you, Mio, on that front? Observation? Yeah, real quickly, real quickly, Gordon. Um, just on Congress, um, uh, I would point out uh, Trump did lose the House. Uh, in 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 the Republicans lost the House uh, on the back of uh, century-high turnout in in the midterm election, and then a Democratic-controlled uh, House of Representatives impeached Trump. Um, 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 so so that happened. Um, to, so to some extent, the constitutional machinery um, worked as, as per standard, <laughs> as by the book. Um, we had a free and fair um, midterm election. Um, uh, there was extraordinarily high turnout. Um, um, uh, there was an accountability moment. Uh, the party, at least in one chamber, uh, in control changed. Uh, and, and, and they availed themselves of the constitutional provisions open to them, the ultimate sanction um, for an American president, and that is the impeachment process. Now, the Senate uh, did not vote to convict. Um, uh, one Republican senator, though, 
uh, Mitt Romney uh, did vote for conviction. That, that's un unprecedented as well. So I, I just put that on the table. And then the other thing is, it's just a general observation, Gordon, all through the Trump presidency, his, it's been a stress test, as we've often said, of American political institutions. But it's, for me, intellectually, it's been, what do we mean by that? Will the institutions hold? And, and it's something I've come to, you know, over my sort of adult life, using the word institutions as a scholar, um, my, you know, for the last 30 years, what do we mean? What is an institution? And at the end of the day, it's people. Um, and, and, um, and you said the honor code. Well, it's institutions work when people remain committed to them. Um, uh, it's those, we talk about the courts, but there are judges making those decisions with extraordinary discretionary power. And, and time and time again, even conservative judges, Republican judges, they made decisions um, about the, the role of evidence in, in, their, in their courts. Uh, they made decisions about the, the nature of the remedy that was being sought uh, by the Trump campaign um, um, against the, the, the evidence and the legal arguments that the Trump attorneys uh, were able to bring to court. Um, and so I, I, I'm reminded at this moment, when we talk about the institutions holding or the courts doing their job, that at the end of the day, uh, there are flesh and blood human beings with, with consciences and enmeshed in social environments of their own um, that are making these decisions that collectively add up to saying, quote, the system worked or the institutions held. And um, as someone that teaches people that go into those careers, uh, not so much now running the US Study Center, but certainly at Stanford, um, I think those of us in thought leadership or as teachers of, of people, as mentors of people going to those extraordinarily important roles in, in government, in the military, um, in, 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 in legal uh, careers. Um, I, think, I think moments like the last four years have only served to underscore sort of the important role that we have. These institutions are not set and forget. They are replenished uh, by the next generation uh, and what they carry with them in their conscience and in their minds um, um, is extraordinarily important. Um, I, I think that's an important takeaway for me not just from the last four years, but from any period you'd care to look at in, in political history, almost in any democratic country. Your focus on institutions and the individuals that staff them uh, make me want to comment on the, the American system. We've already had several questioners uh, on our chat function here raising questions about, you know, why does the United States not have a, 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 a national electoral commission in the same way Australia does? Why is it so bifurcated? And I anticipate you, like me, over the course of the last year, have fielded many, many questions from Australians who just can't quite understand how relatively um, balkanized or chaotic the U.S. system is, where every state's a little bit different, even some states within states, counties do it differently. And on the one hand, um, that's uh, considered to be, a, you know, from an Australian perspective, a relative weakness or at least something difficult to understand from the U.S. But international observers in this election came away actually quite highly complimentary mm. of how the United States handled this election mm. in the middle of a pandemic, which was unlike Australia, not under control, uh, moving to kind of mail-in ballots for the first time ever, every state doing it a little bit differently. Uh, and a very important thing to, to remark on is among the people in American society that deserve tremendous praise today are the local level, yes. county, state by state, electoral commissions, those who are counting the votes. Uh, if you look at the last four weeks, 
uh, in this ongoing legal battle being waged by the president and his legal team, generally the most vocal voices against the, him and his team have been Republicans in Republican-run states who take great pride uh, in that bipartisan process, you know, which has been established on, a, again, a city and a county and a district and a precinct level of how they work together to count and monitor and assure the election is free and fair. Uh, and, and again, we've seen just in the last week some rather impassioned uh, Republican, you know, state-level leaders, you know, uh, calling out the, the dangerousness of, of, of casting dispersions upon them and their party effort. And it's useful to remember how much effort has gone on their part to kind of make this thing happen in the United States. So. The unsung heroes of democracy, Gordon, in, in the American system, given the absence of a national coordinating body like the Australian Electoral Commission, um, it falls on the soldiers, on the sh shoulders, <laughs> pardon me, of, of these, of these, in many cases, in some cases professionals, but in many cases half professional part-timers, or in some cases just straight up volunteers um, at, at the state and local level um, that, that I think also were determined not to have their state or their county become Palm Beach of, you know, from, from 2000 or Broward County from 2000. And moreover, I think also a lot of the alarm bells being run by the intelligence community about foreign interference. And I think a lot of preemptive action uh, that went on in the, in the four years leading up to this election to harden up some of the back end systems uh, but to ensure that uh, 2020 would be a would be a free and and, and fair election, and um, and indeed that that uh, assessment from um, the gentleman that was charged with you know the cybersecurity uh, inside the administration declaring that that you know they gave the election a clean bill of health from a uh, cyber electronic warfare uh, sort of perspective, if you like, and then Trump promptly dismissed him for his troubles uh, only a day or two later. But, um, but oh, there was a lot of work went into making this election uh, free and fair. And, and I agree with you too, Gordon. Um, I was struck by um, how well it worked, given many places were doing mail voting for the first time. And maybe it suggests that that's actually not a bad way to do it uh, versus having to find your precinct and, and get to it on election day, extraordinarily sort of uh, high, high hurdle for, for a lot of people. Um, one that Australians don't have to can, contend with. You can, you can vote almost anywhere in Australia. We, uh, and, uh, uh. we should also give you know, some uh, compliment to how vibrant the democracy is, right? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, if anything defined uh, the 2016 election, it was relative apathy in terms of overall turnout. But this one, you know, particularly a, a previous Obama voters who did not turn out for Hillary Clinton. But it looks like, you know, uh, 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 that Biden is going to hit 81 million votes, which is just a yeah. stunning number in terms of that. I don't know the final number, but you'll probably have a better feel for it. But I think you're going to get close to 67% turnout. Yep. Which yep. The United States will be the highest in a century. Uh, yep. So engagement in democracy is certainly a good thing. And to do so in the current environment in the United States uh, particularly given the obstacles that were thrown in the path of many voters in states like Georgia, where they had to wait in line for eight, nine hours. So it's a tremendous thing that I think probably should be recognized. And uh, no, well said, Gordon, well said. And um, for, for that to happen in the middle of a pandemic, yeah. um, 
remarkable. It was presaged by the turnout boost in, in, in 2018. That was a tidal wave. You know, that was century high turnout for a midterm election. Yeah. I'm just looking at the data on my screen right now. Um, in, 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 the, in the 2018 midterm, it looks like uh, the turnout in the general election of 2020, uh, you've got to go back to 1900, 120 years to find um, a turnout rate higher than the one uh, we're going, we're, you know, and we're down to the last decimal point or, or so now, but probably end up being right around 67 by the time, uh, by the time we're done. Just remarkable. Um, and if I understand the 1920s, it was a very different democracy where kind of party bosses would go out and round up people out of their houses forcibly to force them to vote. So pretty, pretty, you want pretty, to keep your job at the post office, you know what to do next Tuesday. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Speaking yeah. Of, of the peculiarities of the system, uh, there's one state in the United States that has a runoff system, right? Where if, if yes. it's first past the post, but if you, if you don't get 50% of the vote, you've got to go to an automatic runoff. And so that means that uh, for some people, at least for one state, the 2020 election is not over. Not over. <laughs> in the state of Georgia, uh, you've got two runoff elections, which could very well determine the balance of the Senate. Uh, so you want to give us a little bit of insight in terms of what's happening in Georgia now and, and, and perhaps more importantly, what you think is likely to happen to Georgia, because I think that election is scheduled for the 5th of January. So that's between that's right. the inauguration. That's right. So, so Georgia and Louisiana have uh, runoff requirements in their general, lots, lots of states have them in their primaries. Um, uh, but, but for Georgia and Louisiana, for federal office, uh, if you don't get 50%, the top two contenders go through uh, to, um, to a special election. Uh, Maine has the Australian system of preferential voting. Uh, which is in America, sometimes they call the Australian system of preferential voting that we have for House of Representatives elections. In America, they call it instant runoff voting, which when you think about it is, a, is, a, is an apt name for it, right? And that we get down to the, uh, a final two election, two, two party preferred or two candidate preferred on the night or in the days immediately following the election in the Australian version of it. In, a, in, in uh, Georgia and Louisiana, it's this stop and, and then the top two do it again a month later. Uh, voting in um, uh, presidential elections in France uh, is another multi-stage. Anyway, um, Georgia, and oh, fascinating in that the two Senate seats are up at the same time. One is a so-called special election to fill a resignation, uh, and one is the ordinary six-year term. But but um, but anyway, it means that unusually both of Georgia's Senate seats were up uh, on the November ballot. Um, and and in, in, in one of those races, um, <laughs> um, fascinating, um, Purdue, the incumbent who was at the end of his regular six-year term seeking another term, um, he <laughs> um, he's come up short by three-tenths of a percentage point uh, with a libertarian candidate getting 2.3% of the vote. So he and the Democrat will go uh, are looking at, a, um, at, at, at the election. So he's come up agonizingly short. In the special election, that's Kelly uh, uh, Loeffler, um, um, there were, because it was a special election, people came out of the woodwork. There were 20 candidates contested the general election, uh, and, and the Republican vote split between um, two prominent Republicans. Uh, uh, um, the Kelly Kelly Loeffler, who's currently got the seat just through an interim 
what we in Australia call a casual vacancy. She got 26% of the vote and another Republican, Doug Collins, got 20%. Um, so these races, look, ordinarily what happens with these things, Gordon, is once the presidential election is done, the air goes out of the balloon to some extent. And that turnout surge that Trump generated, particularly among, Republic, among Democrats, just mad keen to get rid of him, um, and, and that ultimately flipped Georgia. Do those voters say mission accomplished and, and stay at home now, and they're just less energized to show up in the first week of January and, and vote again in, in Senate races when, when the thing they were compelled to take care of, getting rid of Trump, that's done. Um, and so that's the usual, once the imperative of the general election is gone, the, both Louisiana and Georgia, the history here has been they revert to type. And, and reverting to type for a red state, historically red state like Georgia, my, my, my best prediction would be Republicans win. Now, it's getting awfully interesting with the Georgia Republican Party literally tearing itself apart over Trump insisting there was electoral fraud. The Republican Secretary of State, as you alluded to earlier, amazing sort of eloquence and courage repeatedly fronting the press and saying, stop it, this is dangerous, you're, you're hurting democracy. It's a, it's a threat to me and my staff and indeed my family, just stop what you're doing. Um, and so the Republicans in Georgia are at war with themselves over this. Why aren't our senators supporting uh, Donald Trump? And they just wanna quietly win a special election, thanks very much. If it was a nice low energy contest, they will sail back, they will sail into, um, <laughs> back, to, back, to, uh, back to Washington. Um, and so they're between a rock and a hard place. And now Trump is coming to the state this weekend and, and it's Donald Trump. So is he going to talk about himself? Probably. Or is he going to say, you know, the most important thing now is that we send two Republicans back. And so uh, we give Mitch McConnell uh, a majority and Republicans a majority to stand up to Joe Biden. Is, is Trump going to make that party building speech or is he going to make a Trump I was robbed speech I'll leave it for people to speculate on that, but but it's it is certainly making. Oh, and moreover, Trump coming back to the state energizes Democrats again. Like he's back. I thought we got rid of this guy. Um, so so that, that's the other wrinkle here. It, it like all things to do with this year. It's not quite done with us yet. We've got one more uh, spin of the wheel or tw two spins of the wheel with the two Senate races. Um, and these Republican candidates are, uh, are under all kinds of scrutiny as a result. The nation's focus has just fallen on, on this race. And indeed, Purdue is under every day. The New York Times has got another story about he's the most prolific stock trader um, among any um, of the sitting U.S. senators, uh, often involving a, a really fascinating piece of investigative reporting detailing his stock trades that, you know, according to the Times, uh, you know, are clearly touching on companies uh, that would fall under some of his committee responsibilities as a as United States Senator. And so people are starting to connect those dots as well. And so it's, 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 I, look, at the end of the day, I think they probably get back for the reasons I, I, I talked about, but, but Trump is this massive wild card uh, injecting himself back into Georgia, um, having lost the presidency, but with these two Senate races at stake, um, um, one, one that I'll be keeping an eye on all the way through to January 5th. So two observations for me on Georgia, one karmic and one broader kind of U.S. political. Um, the karmic thing is it, 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 there are two 
previous legislators in the United States that Trump had particular battles with. One was John McCain, the former senator from Arizona, uh, you know, and for, for many reasons, a man of high principle, which Trump had this longstanding feud with. And the other was John Lewis, uh, a former congressman from Georgia, leader in the civil rights movement, who didn't attend Trump's inauguration and for which slight Trump never forgave him. Uh, and there is actually something that on, on a karmic level about the two Republican states that kind of flipped uh, were, were Arizona and Georgia, uh, the home states of these two legislators. That well, I thought you were going to mention uh, Jeff Flake there for a moment. but, um, but... <laughs> Jeff Flake is alive and well. I'm happy to report. Oh, pardon me. You're... Okay. <laughs> in that regard. Now, the broader thing is really interesting. Um, uh, for Australians who are trying to understand why to date, you know, four weeks now after the election, despite the overwhelming amount of evidence, despite the fact that the, you know, every country with the exception of Russia now has acknowledged Biden as a presidential elect and called him, why nine out of 10 elected Republicans haven't? Why the Senate majority leader hasn't? Um, you really can't understand that without understanding Georgia uh, because Georgia is largely the last chance the Republican Party has to have a direct control over lever power in Washington, D.C. And if they lose that race, they lose the Senate. Uh, and the, the irony there is I think they've probably come to the conclusion, although you've described the, 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 the difficulty there, that they cannot win that race without Trump, or they certainly can't win that race if Trump is against them. So they've got to keep Trump on their side. They've got to get him engaged, which means they can't just come out and say, uh, you've lost, go home. Because if he packs up his bags and go home, then doesn't get out his base. Absent that kind of 20, uh, nobody knows the exact percentage, but we were talking about earlier, that 20, 30% of Republicans who are Trumpists and will only turn out for Trump, it, it's a much harder lift for them. Uh, and so it, it's a real difficult position they're in. Although I, I, I agree with your conclusions and I agree with you with how this sword cuts both ways. I mean, having Trump there activates that base also activates the Democratic base. Yep. Uh, and, and I haven't seen an analyst yet that predicts with confidence what's going to happen in Georgia because we just don't know. In a situation where you don't have mandatory turnout at the polls, it really is going to be a question of who actually votes uh, without Trump himself on the ballot. So a really important development that it's going to uh, impact a lot on the Biden administration in, in, uh, in January. So uh, let's move if we could because we're quickly burning through our time here. Yeah, right. To the transition. Yeah. Uh, your team at the United States Studies Center has already engaged a lot of the members of the Biden transition team who, who have been nominated thus far. You're, you're deeply involved in kind of policy on security, on economics, on trade, etc. Um, thus far, uh, President-elect Biden and his president, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris have kind of laid out diplomatic teams, kind of administrative operational teams in terms of the White House and the, the vice presidential staff, an economic team. Um, um, I'm curious as to your assessment of the appointments thus far, what they say about an incoming Biden administration, and then what their implications are for Australia. Sure. So uh, where to begin there? Look, in the main... Um, the fact that a lot of security international-facing po uh, positions were announced first, I think, is, is look, that's almost always the case, um, but, but really significant. I think it's where um, Biden himself is most comfortable, number one. Uh, his long time on, well, as VP, doing a lot of representing 
um, of the United States abroad, including coming here to Australia in, in, in 2016 when he was vice president, but his long career on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, as, a, as a vice president, you have your own foreign policy, national security uh, team, and, and some of those people had been with him all the way from his time at Senate Foreign Relations. And so not really surprised to see uh, Tony Blinken be nominated, uh, designated uh, uh, to be his Secretary of State. Uh, there was a little bit of thought, would that go to Susan Rice? I think uh, wasn't surprised to see it go to Blinken um, in, in the end. Um, uh, Jake Sullivan, again, not a huge surprise that he would be the National Security Advisor. Um, again, someone that uh, a Biden lifer, um, um, pretty much, and, and someone whose entire career is a young man, uh, only in his uh, early 40s, but has basically uh, has been, you know, welded uh, to Joe Biden um, uh, since before Biden uh, was vice president. So unsurprising to see him uh, get a big job. John Kerry was everywhere with Biden over the course of the campaign and had been very prominent in media. Not surprising to see him get a big overarching role in this climate czar uh, role. And, 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 it's, and again, I think pay close attention. The idea that a former Secretary of State has been given that brief um, speaks volumes to the way that Biden see climate, the Biden team see climate change as something not just about domestic policy, but as they have telegraphed for the world to hear, is something that will suffuse right through everything they do, especially into foreign policy and, and security policy uh, as well. So, so watch that space uh, that someone as prominent and with the veto of, of John Kerry has been given that responsibility. Um, um, uh, Avril Haines, uh, first woman to be um, nominated to be Director of National Intelligence and normally enormously significant, and also another first, uh, Janet Yellen, um, to be Treasury Secretary. We're waiting to hear what happens uh, with SecDef, um, the Secretary of Defense. Uh, all the betting had firmed behind Michelle Flournoy, who the United States Study Center, we'd hosted her in a webinar not so long ago. That one has slowed down and, and sort of, again, this sort of palace intrigue now as to what's going on and who's up and who's down and why and uh, pressure from the left, pressure from the African-American community to see more uh, faces of color in the Biden cabinet. Who, who knows? Um, as someone once described to me, it's a little bit like uh, high school politics uh, and, and running for student body president and the ups and downs and the and the cliques that form and and, it, and it's very tough to pass that from from this distance um but sort of nonetheless curious that secretary of defense has not been nominated yet what does it mean for australia gordon look look real quickly on that um it is a from the perspective of will the united states be focused on the indo-pacific um, the mindset that i think is, was cemented under the trump administration of identifying China as the single biggest strategic priority uh, for the United States. All that remains in place with these picks. There is nothing there um, thus far to indicate that that is not the case. Um, a little bit of, you know, tea leaf watching and perhaps a little more than that. Uh, Democrats have a transatlantic bias. Republicans have a Pacific bias in their view of the world and where America's interests and foreign policy challenges lie. I think that's legitimate. Um, but nonetheless, I think that these names that have, have been put forward so far, and, and if you've read closely 
or listen closely to the things they've said over the four years uh, that they've been out of government. Uh, I think understanding that the Indo-Pacific is the dominant strategic theatre of this generation and perhaps for a few more generations to come. I think they've been on that journey. They bring that mindset uh, to government. Um, I think the only question is what form now does the policy take? Biden immediately in an interview with Tom Friedman that was in the Times a couple of days ago, he's not going to be in a big hurry to undo any of the current Trump policy settings on tariffs. And I think that they are going to have a comprehensive, very deliberate strategy, the key words being scalpel, not sledgehammer, competition with China, not confrontation. I think Australia will welcome that. But by the same token, I don't think we can expect any significant policy traction per se, at least to the middle of 21, I would say, Gordon, you're, you know Washington better than I do, but, but and, and the, the pace at which a new administration can get up to speed. But given the, the scope of how they want a China policy and an Indo-Pacific policy to be multidimensional, comprehensive, well thought out, I, I don't, even though there's been a lot of prep put into that, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine, Gordon, that that would get bettered down and start to see rubber hit the road with the, the second layer of appointments, the third layer of appointments, all the policy settings and things rolled out and we're starting to see tangible differences out here. I would imagine back half of 21 rather than first half at the earliest. Well, you're spot on in terms of how difficult the process is. You know, the inauguration is not till the end of January. And then after that, you have the difficult process of getting the, the president's you know, cabinet kind of Senate approved. Uh, so for most administrations, it's not until the middle of June, uh, July, before they're kind of really up and running and staffed up with the people to run it. Although this election is a little bit weird. Uh, and a little bit weird, a lot weird. <laughs> um, we have a current president of the United States who has largely abdicated his interest in anything other than contesting the recounts, right? So, you know, we have 30 people, uh, thir a person dying every 30 seconds of COVID. Mm -hmm. You know, this rampant emerging uh, of, of the worst public health crisis in American history and nothing coming out of the White House on that. You've got this ongoing, you know, serious trade dispute between China uh, of, and one of the United States closest allies, Australia, and nothing coming out of the administration. So in a normal, and I went through five different presidential transitions in the years I lived in Washington, DC, six actually, in the 25 years I was there. Uh, and, and during that time, you know, it was really rare for a transition to speak out because there was this, this, um, this sense of decorum right. that it, it, until the inauguration, you didn't want to step on the toes of the current elected administration because President Trump is president all the way up until the 20th of January. But I thought it was quite striking this week that Jake Sullivan, the designated you know, national security advisor, came out with a really strong statement in support of Australia, noting that Australia had, had paid a lot in blood and treasure to maintain shared ideals and freedoms around the world and that it was important for the United States and other democracies get behind it. For that to come out from the president-elect's campaign as opposed to the White House was, was a telling thing. So this is a bit strange. Let me, let me just make two kind of broader observations about narratives that I hear emerging in, in Australia that I think are worth addressing. One was an early on narrative that somehow because of a Biden focus on climate change, 
that that was going to be a, a major area of contestation yeah, with yeah. Australia, and that was going to be bad for Australia. Yeah. Um, uh, now, there, there probably will be some points of difference on this, uh, and I think we're going to shift from the U.S. being a laggard to the U.S. being very proactive on this front. I, I'm skeptical that that will become a major irritant in the relationship. At a broader level, if you step back, you know, my view is that Australia in, in modern history has become one of the most proactive, you know, full-throated advocates of multilateralism in the history of the planet. You know, we, we, we love international institutions and standards and norms and organizations and multilateralism in all of its glorious formats. Uh, and for the last four years, the United States has been rather proactive in its efforts to tear those apart. Uh, and so the spectrum for Australia-U.S. cooperation has just expanded exponentially. Yeah, uh, and, and so my guess is, you know, whatever differences there may be between the current government in Canberra and the U.S. over climate change will be overwhelmed by the 99 other areas where we're now able to work with, which are definitely in our interest that coincide yeah. with our policies and our strategies and our priorities. And yeah. so that, that, that to me is going to be interesting. The second narrative that I've heard developing here uh, which I think is worth addressing, is that um, given the likely focus of uh, a Biden administration on repairing transatlantic relationships, mm -hmm. NATO in particular, that that's somehow tantamount, tantamount to a reversal of the, the, you know, the pivot towards Asia or an Indo-Pacific mm -hmm. strategy writ large. Mm -hmm. um, and in my view, um, if you listen to what the Biden campaign has said, what the people around him have said, is they recognized full well. It was even stated specifically in the statement by Jake Sullivan that mm -hmm. you know, in order for Australia and the United States and the United States and Australia together to effectively respond to economic coercion or other challenges that are, that are coming out of the current era in relations with China, it really requires a broader coalition. Yep. You know, and so repairing relations with Europe, repairing relations with NATO, is something that I would argue is directly in Australia's national interest because the more you get Germany and France and the UK, you know, and then Japan and India uh, and Association of Southeast Asian Nations, Vietnam on board, uh, the more influence we have uh, in, in advocating for that rules-based order that's been such a mantra for Australia. So those are two developments that I, I've caught in terms of how we're perceiving these, these changes. Um, Look, we're, we're quickly running out of time. I, we can't end this conversation without delving into an area of particular expertise of yours. Uh, mm -hmm. I made oh, okay. it once of calling you a pollster, which I will repent for. Uh, while <laughs> not a pollster, you're, you're someone who has more expertise on polling that, that, than most. Uh, we had a wonderful conversation with your, your friend and colleague, Mark Texter. Yeah. Um, I think probably now four weeks removed from election day, things aren't looking quite so bad, but you will be fully aware that the morning after the election, there was this narrative that how could the pollsters get it so wrong? They're wrong again. What is the, what is the youth of polling? Uh, and given the intense focus on polling here in Australia leading up to, would you just kind of give us your, your early assessment of, yeah. of polling and understanding American politics? Yeah, so, so, um, so much of this comes back to a key institutional difference between the two countries, uh, and that's mandatory voter turnout that we have in Australia. It means that um, uh, our Australian census is a great benchmark document for any pollster because the electorate looks a lot like what the census tells us the population looks like. And indeed, unlike the United States, 
uh, that runs a census only every 10 years, Australia is running uh, our, our censuses uh, uh, every five or six years. So, so that's, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great fill-up, as it were, two great institutional leg up, legs up that, that Australian pollsters enjoy. Um, and, and the track record, the 2019 election, notwithstanding here in Australia, um, the track record of Australian polling is, is generally a fair bit stronger than, than the counter one in the United States. And indeed, the other thing about the United States is, is, is we've learned over successive elections, 2000, 2016, and almost 2020, that winning the national popular vote um, is, is by the by. It's, we understand full well that the way a presidential election is won is by winning the electoral college, this winner-take-all mechanism state by state. So state by state polling is where the action is analytically, if you will, but it's also where the error is in America. That's very hard when you overlay how different all the different states are uh, demographically. Um, and so when you look at the 2020 performance, um, on, look, I think I'm still looking at this myself. Um, there are some big outlier states this time. It's, it's less, I think, systematic um, in terms of the poll error, but the where the polls performed especially poorly, Gordon, um, uh, Iowa, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, um, a little less so in Pennsylvania. Um, Georgia was always going to be close, and according to the polls, and guess what? Georgia was close. Um, Florida, the polls will be off by a tolerable amount at the end of the day. But uh, on election eve, um, states that have turned out to be Biden plus anywhere from line ball to plus three. Um, um, you know, some of the poll averages were way off. They're not off by two or three points. We, you know, Wisconsin, for instance, plus eight yeah. um, on election eve. And so, and, and the issue, Gordon, is, 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 is Trump <laughs> and this ability he has to turn out people that are otherwise almost off the grid from the perspective of pollsters. They, they are loosely connected um, to, the, to the voter registration system. They, a pollster would look at what we know about that people living in a given household and say, those are low propensity voters. We don't, if, if we are able to contact them, we don't need to give them much weight in our final estimation of how this state's going to vote because it's very unlikely that people of that demographic slice vote, but Trump, um, turned out that group in 16 and he turned them out again and then some uh, in, in 2020 in a way that pollsters are still hadn't caught up with. Trump's ability to mobilise down status, you know, whites without a college degree living outside a major metro um, uh, with, with, a, with a tenuous voting history. Um, some of those people are difficult to poll in the first place. And indeed, part of that is related to their preference for Trump. One of the ways they signal um, um, uh, their dissatisfaction with the swamp, with the status quo, is by not answering the phone, um, or if it is a pollster, uh, hanging up, or even confounding a pollster. It is less to do with, I think, a shy Trump vote uh, than it is to a misunderstood Trump vote or a, a, a Trump vote um, that um, making like the pollsters is part of their protest, uh, anti-establishment um, um, impulses, as it were. It, it's a piece of political expression itself. 
Uh, and, and that's particularly concentrated, I said, in a handful of upper Midwestern states where the polar error was especially large. One slight caveat on that is Trump did do a little better with minority voters than I think anybody was anticipating. And was that something that might have been some misreporting um, for a person of color to say they're actually going to vote for Donald Trump? Uh, maybe that was there's a bit of shy Trump voting there, uh, shy Trump survey responding there. But um, the thing about this cycle, I think 2016, we had widespread poll error, uh, or, you know, at, at levels that we, we shouldn't see statistically. It's more geographically concentrated this time. And I think pollsters have a story as to why that's the case. Um, but the problem is they're like generals fighting the last war. Um, and we'll have a different set of, you know, who knows, Trump runs again in 24. Um, we'll, we'll be in the same situation, I think. And it does suggest we need a different way of reaching these people or, or measuring their political preferences in ways that the current technologies, mobile phone, trying to recruit people to join an, an internet panel just clearly aren't working. And it, and it might be, you know, a return to good old fashioned shoe leather um, knocking on doors, which is something the campaigns themselves do when trying to mobilize people to vote that are otherwise, you know, not particularly connected to all the things you and I are connected to, Gordon, uh, watching our email obsessively, consuming news about politics obsessively. We're going to vote. We're not the, we're not, we're not the ones the political parties have difficulty mobilizing. It's, it's, it's that key elements of the Trump constituency uh, that are flying below the radar, at least from the, at least the current set of radar that, that the polling industry in the United States has. Well, I don't know about you, but despite you know, our daily conversations on these and the tremendous work that your center has done and my colleagues have done, um, I, I end probably 2020 with more questions than I started the year with. Uh, you, you have this system in the United States where you know, Donald Trump in the last election won despite losing the popular vote uh, by 2.9 million votes, and he ended up with 306 to 223 in the Electoral College. And Biden is going to have won the popular vote by 7 million votes, and he has the exact same total of 306 to 223. There's some uniqueness there. Um, and there's some big questions uh, that you put your finger on already in terms of demographics, right? What is the, what is the lingering Trump effect? Do they continue? Is there, are Arizona and Georgia you know, a, a foreshadowing of what will happen eventually in Texas and North Carolina, oh, yeah. Florida, yeah. Uh, how those are shifting? But all those are going to continue to be of interest <laughs> to Australia because of importance to Australia. So let me, yep. let me end. We're right at time right now, but let me just kind of wrap up by saying I look forward to continuing this conversation with you in different formats and maybe with different focuses next year. But given the, the priorities that you and your colleagues at the United States Study Center are, are, are putting together for next year, why don't you just give us a little of a bit of a preview as for 2021 for the United States Study Center? What issues do you think uh, are most important for Australia and where you'll be focusing. Uh, and then we'll kind of wrap up with that. Real quickly, Gordon, um, right now, in real time, the Australian government has an opportunity. Um, one administration is, is going out the door. The new administration is going to take some time to find its footing. Um, the urgency of Australia's strategic challenges, uh, as, as recent news over, over the last week or so reveal, are, are extremely high and paramount. Um, allies like Australia and Japan, I think in particular, capable, committed allies of substance 
have a real opportunity to progress their national interests and the interest in engaging the Biden administration in the region through the choices that they make now. And, and that is something the United States Study Center is broadcasting loud and clear to anybody and everybody uh, in Canberra. Um, it's also a critical time, and this holds irrespective, this was true under Trump, it'll find a different footing under a Biden administration, but the Australia-US alliance in particular, the government-to-government relationship is evolving and broadening, as you well know, Gordon, in real time. Um, the number of things the two governments are working on in response to the strategic challenges in the region are growing every day, be it critical minerals, a topic that you and Jeff Wilson have spent a lot of time on looking out there at Perth um, through to uh, uh, critical investments in science and technology, uh, cooperation on cybersecurity, um, what has historically been a defense and intelligence alliance between the two governments is broadening in its scope in ways that I think ordinary Australians don't have a lot of visibility on. But on the 70th anniversary of ANZUS in 2021, not only is this important work going on behind the scenes, as it were, in, inside Canberra and inside Washington, um, but the United States Study Center is, is helping putting its shoulder to the wheel in, in being a source of ideas uh, and, and advice on that and monitoring developments uh, coming out of Washington of relevance to the Australian government in this broadening portfolio of, of points of contact, uh, but also amplifying uh, the, the need for, I think, ordinary Australians to understand the breadth and the, di the dynamic nature uh, of the alliance at this point and how it is taking on a new life. It is, is less and less something that defines or constrains Australian national interests and becoming increasingly a vehicle for advancing Australia's interests. As Australia, I think, over the last four years under Trump, by the way, it's got a bit of spring in its step with respect to articulating what its strategic interests are, what its policy needs are. Australia comes to this Biden administration a stronger and more capable and more self-confident ally uh, than it did to the start of the Trump administration. It takes a Trump, uh, but here we are. And it's an extremely interesting moment uh, for anybody working in the Australian strategic affairs community, not just because we've got this transition in the United States, um, from a Trump administration to a Biden administration, but because of these other dynamics at work and the United States Study Center has got a front row seat and, and is a meaningful contributor to that evolution. And, and, and so it remains, I, I wish we could say it was going to be a quiet holiday break, but with the transition in the United States, it's very much game on for us, particularly those first couple of months of 2021. Well, it was, it was an honor to be with you in Canberra just at the beginning of, 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 of last month. Um, and I think you're exactly correct. The tremendous work that you and your team have been doing uh, augmented by the work that uh, my team have been doing on the Indo-Pacific in particular with work on India and Indonesia and Vietnam and Japan and Korea are all of keen interest uh, to an incoming administration in Washington, D.C. So we look forward to partnering with you going forward uh, to kind of help advance the national interest here in Australia and our own collective understanding of these developments. This has been a wonderful series. It's been a great pleasure, Simon. Thank you for your time and sharing your expertise. Uh, I do hope you get a little bit of a break <laughs> during the holiday. Me too. Uh, but we look forward to re-engaging in, in, in uh, 2021. To all who have, have watched the series and joined us for this, thank you for your support. We look forward to, to engaging with you again next year. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, Gordon.